I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. I am Michael Patton, coming to you from the Crudo House here in Edmond, Oklahoma. Tim, good to see you. Sam, good to see you. Good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, we are going to jump right in this time, once again, and continue our discussion uh, that we began last time. If you didn't listen to us last time, jump in and, and grab a hold of that, download it on your MP3, stream it from the Parchment and Pen blog. But this is a continuation of a series that's really gone for a couple of weeks now. But uh, I think uh, it will benefit you to grab a hold of those and see what it is we're talking about to us. Tim, give a summary of what we've been talking about so far. Well, a lot of it has been, we've been talking about this for a while now, but really this topic of theological arrogance. And as we talk to churches a lot right now just about the theological training that we do, what we recognize is that in many people's eyes, and rightfully so, that people equate as you grow theologically, you grow in arrogance as well. And people have, it seems like it's almost an observable fact that if, if you look at the vast people who will enter into some, for, some form of theological training, just be it listening to certain people, visiting certain websites or whatever, that there seems to be this, this byproduct of arrogance that accompany it. And what we're doing is looking at that and saying this should not be. There is no way as we grow closer to our understanding of God that we should grow in our arrogance. That should not be. Um, And so we're talking about why that is. We're sharing experiences of people who model well, growing in humility as they grow closer to God. Know-it-alls. We've experienced them in every single area. I mean, it's just not theology. It's whenever you come to someone and they know everything about this subject and they feel the need to correct you because you are speaking on a subject of their expertise and we've been around the people that will correct you all the time you know that, mm-hmm. that you know have you ever been around someone that's really good in english grammar and i, I get this all the time there's this one girl i'm not going to mention her name but you know who you are <laughs> she writes me Every single day. Never been really kind of great thing you said here. I think it's, I want to encourage you about it's. Did you know that you used the wrong preposition at this point right here? Just trying to help you out. God bless. Yeah. I, every single day, it's some type of correction. It's actually me. I've been doing it under a, a false gender here to, to, to help you out. Well, I, I mean, I usually follow her advice. I get really mad at first. I, who cares? And then a little bit later, I'll go and correct it. You know? Uh, we've been around people who will correct us at every turn, uh, no matter what the subject is. We've been around people who will be permissive to let us make the wrong turns to, to mess up, but they're still there for us, and you're not really sure what they're thinking. The first person, you know what they're thinking. You know in their mind they're evaluating everything you say, everything you do, and, and ready at any moment to jump on you. Whenever it comes to Bible, whenever it comes to theology... We're passionate about our theology, just as this girl may be passionate about English grammar. We love theology. We love truth. We love correctness 
because we want we, we believe that God has revealed himself in a correct way. And that it's honoring to God to know him as he has revealed himself to us. It's a worshipful experience to believe God and believe him in the right way. Truth is fun. Yeah. I mean, it really is. That's just, it sounds simplistic, but uh, to know it is exciting. It's exhilarating is, you know, to finally see and to understand and it, it it's fun. There's simply no way. And you're right, Tim. Also, it, we um, it, you combine that with a sense of zeal, with, with a commitment to to the glory of God. This zeal, uh, this intensity to want uh, God's name and and grace and and His truth to be upheld publicly. And you combine those things together, and it is a perfect brew mm-hmm. to to lead to arrogance and to intolerance and to an absence of humility. I talked about a um, recently on the, a blog post, I talked about a certain organization that's out there, and there's lots of them, okay? So I'm not saying just this one and I'm going to pick on it. But the, there's certain organizations out there that seem to do stakeouts on people, and, and they're waiting for someone to beat up on, somebody to correct Every single thing they write, every single single thing they say, every single broadcast that they do, it is something, okay, here's how this guy's gone wrong. Here's how this guy's gone wrong. Here's how this guy's gone. Kind of a correction type ministry. Sometimes they're called appraising ministries, you know, ready to, to appraise things. Um, and, and gosh, I mean, we taught last night on the doctrine of the hypostatic union, mm-hmm. and we appraised Nestorianism, Eutychianism, and Apollinarianism. And we said, don't go there. These are all bad views. Um, some of these people out there that, that get your theology and you get it correct, some, suddenly you become appraising, you know, <laughs> because you're able to now. You know, if you know the truth, now you can fall spot error. How much is it that that is our job to, to you know, whenever you're talking to someone and they, they seem to be having false views of this or that, um, maybe minor, maybe some not quite so minor in your view. When is it that we begin stepping over that line and say, we need to step in as your corrector. We need to step in and make sure that you're not going in that direction. Sam, you're a pastor. Me and Tim are both uh, working in a theological ministry. How much of that should people see in us? And how much of that should it be that we are gracious those who allow for disagreements allow for you to make errors in my presence theologically and i'm not going to jump on you how do we balance that well that's a tough question uh but i think surely part of the answer and i'm not saying this is the whole answer let me just mention one little bit of it part of it has to do with uh whatever the particular topic is because there are certain doctrines certain primary fundamental truths to which we must be committed because the very essence of christianity is suspended upon them uh, without which there would be no true christian faith um, you, you think for example you read through first john and it becomes rather clear on multiple occasions that um, if somebody in our presence is denying that Jesus is God come in the flesh, then we have a very serious problem 
um, because John indicates that the person who denies the incarnation is animated by, or at least that particular concept is animated by the spirit of Antichrist. It, it's a demonic um, assault on the very essence of, of what is the true Christian faith. So if we're in a conversation and somebody becomes um, very animated and excited about uh, denying the, the incarnation, then I think that calls for an appropriate uh, energetically um, uh, and, and very intense response on our part. Now, it doesn't have to be mean. It doesn't have to be denunci- uh, denunciation, but it has mm-hmm. to be say, well, I understand why you're saying what you do, but you, you do need to realize that my conviction is, because of these texts, uh, there is no Christian faith apart from this principle doctrine. So, I mean, so there's going to be a, a considerable degree of energy that I am going to display in my response to somebody who's denying the incarnation and in my defense of it, as over against if they articulate a view of uh, uh, the end times and events associated with the second coming of Christ that might be different from mine. That you might share your opinion and but let it roll off your back sure. very quickly sure. after that and move on in fellowship. Simply because my only real concern there is do you believe that Jesus is personally, physically, visibly coming back to consummate his kingdom? That concerns me, uh, but not... Uh, the, the events associated with it. So there are varying degrees of importance among the many doctrines that we see in Scripture that I think call for or warrant varying degrees of energy and um, excitement and uh, the, it's going to determine how am I going to engage you in the next three hours trying to convince you otherwise or are we going to move on on to other matters. So, Well, even this guy that you do respond to regarding the incarnation, my guess is, though, you're not going to bring that up every time you see him for the rest of his life, though, either. Are you? Uh, probably not. But, <laughs> okay. but certainly, I mean, you see I'm, it as important, absolutely. so you do want to, you don't want him to go to hell exactly. with an uh, overtly wrong view, but you also don't want him to move away and get a restraining order against you either. Right. I want him to see in my conviction concerning the truth of the incarnation a winsome, appealing, joy-filled delight in who I believe God to be. I want him to be able to say, you know, I, I don't agree with that guy, but goodness, look how it changes his life. Look how it energizes the way he relates to people. Look how it motivates him to care about my eternal welfare. I mean, I would hope the depth of my conviction on that issue would cause him, and he might not ever admit that to me face to face, but mm-hmm. it would cause him to, 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 when he's alone on his bed late at night, falling asleep, saying, you know, there's something different about that guy because of his belief in, his intense, energetic, heartfelt belief that Jesus of Nazareth really was God in human flesh. Well, I, I want that to haunt him in a mm-hmm. good way. I don't want him to, to lie there on his bed thinking, man, what a hateful, mean-spirited, inflexible jerk that I really don't care whether I ever see or talk to again. I want him to pick up on the presence of the Spirit of God who has changed my life and my and my approach to people and how I think about others and myself based on the fact that I really do believe Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. 
Would you say that this is, Sam, you have a really well, good knowledge of church history. Would you say that this is something, a way that is is a way that people throughout church history have acted? Or would you say that just this, this sense of the way we carry ourselves is more of a 21st century uh, necessary component based on what the last 40 years have been with fundamentalism or stuff, or both and? How would you say? Well, I'm sure that we could all find uh, examples in church history of obviously theological arrogance and an intolerance and um, a um, an offensive way of rather than a winsome and appealing and attractive way of communicating truth. But yeah, I do think that um, that perhaps with the increase in the the, the, uh, the various media of communication I mean whether it's we're communicating with blogs we're texting each other we're calling each other on the phone um, uh, there is uh, plus as you said just developments in our society broadly in the last 40 to 50 years uh, with some people it's a, a perpetuation of this inflexible angry fundamentalism um, as over against maybe uh, a reaction to it which says uh, we we really can't have that depth of confidence therefore we need to have what people call you know intellectual humility or what others have called a generous orthodoxy uh, so yeah I, I suspect that in in our generation we are seeing uh, this phenomenon perhaps more so uh, than in other times, but at the same time, when you read the reformers, you read a Luther, a Calvin, or others. Well, uh, Luther and uh, Erasmus, their yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're, their they're, conversation was not really the uh, the one you'd think of quite so much as an illustration. <laughs> yeah, there's a the language that was used uh, to describe one's theological well, passions get involved. What's going sure. on in history gets involved. Who, who you know. The Glenn Beck issue that's been going around gets involved whenever you begin to be too, too well. Everybody's being tolerant, so I'm not going to be type thing. You know, I'm going to stand up. But I want to take your illustration real quick. You're at you're at a church. You're a pastor at a church. Again, we're at ministry, but I want to take it. I want to put it in a different workplace at uh, you know IBM Computers, and you have a guy that's in the cubicle next to you who is a friend of yours, but he cl- proclaims to be a Christian, but yet. He denies the incarnation. Um, you guys have talked about it, and let's get to the stage two. You have stood up. You have planted your flag. You believe that this is an, a, an essential, which it is, and you believe that it is a cardinal Christian doctrine, and you stand up for it. You defend. You make your case. The guy's no longer convinced. Uh, a few days later, he asked you to go to lunch with him. What do you say? Well, I mean, I, so I was a computer programmer in a Fortune 500 company for five years, and I've definitely been in this situation where uh, the guy who was on the cubicle on the other side of the wall from me, so we were th- within five feet of each other the entire time, we would we would talk about, I was actually in this, uh, I would come back and work for the summer of my last couple of years and then go to Dallas Seminary during the fall and the spring, so everyone on my team knew that I was going to seminary during the school year, um, and 
one of my coworkers was started becoming pretty uh, anti Christian in his his view, and then started even saying, you know, hey, you're not supposed to talk about religion at work, you know, are you? And it's not like I would pontificate, but it would just be all everybody on our team. We all had lunch together, and it, things would come up here and there. You know, hey, what did you do over the weekend? Oh, my church did this, and and I would just, you know, I was just being transparent to him, and. I mentioned this because he has mentioned this since then, but this guy was living a very different lifestyle. Uh, he was involved in a lot of things that he probably should be arrested for, um, but he was just always on the borderline, lived a lifestyle very different from mine. And um, when he one time mentioned to me, he said, you know what, you shouldn't talk about God at work. And I said, well, I don't want you to ever feel uncomfortable, and I said, and I also don't want uh, that you feel like, you know, you don't want to hang out with me, but I said, you know what, I, I truly believe that God is real. I do, like in the innermost of my being, I believe that God is real. And I said, you know, and furthermore, God is the most important thing in my life. And and I said, and you talk about things that are the most important thing to your life. And I just say, you know, God's the most important thing in my life. And, and I love to talk about him. And if at any time I make you uncomfortable or whatever, you know, let me know because I don't want to do that, you know, but but I like hanging out. We're good friends. And, and I just want to, I don't want to be a different person to you. You know, I want to be who I am in your presence and uh, and this guy ended up getting fired from that job uh, he ended up suing the company all these terrible things happened but I continued to answer his phone calls and none of the other people did I continued to tell him I'm praying for him and things like that and now of anyone in my workplace he's the one that I still have a relationship with okay let's a, that, that's a good setup that I want to I want to try to distinguish here because you're talking about somebody who's clearly an unbeliever yeah well but I'm he, talking he was about Roman Catholic here. actually okay so well that kind of more on the antagonistic side. Yeah, yeah. This guy over here is more of a heretic type guy. Mm-hmm. So you got an unbeliever and a heretic. And what I feel like, and I'm not sure what to do with this, that's why I'm bringing this up, is I feel like we'll answer the phone call more of the unbeliever, the more antagonistic, because we feel like it's witnessing opportunity. Whereas on the other side, what do we do? Do we do we break fellowship? Well, when Paul says, if you speak in the tongues of angels but have not love... It's nothing, and I'd say even no matter. But there is a where time whenever you break is. fellowship, and what does that look like? Whenever you have doctrinal issues, is there a breaking of fellowship that takes place at the workplace? Because it may be easy to say, "Well, at church, I'm not going to talk to him," you know. But outside, I, and I'm not saying that's right, but I'm just saying in the workplace, this guy now comes and says, "I want to go to lunch with you." I, you know, he's the one that denies the incarnation. And but yet proclaims to be a Christian because I see a little bit of difference there. But but if he's not under discipline from a local church because of his aberrant theology, then I don't see any biblical grounds for you not going to lunch with him. Okay, I mean, it's not a First Corinthians five situation where Paul says, uh, "Treat the so-called brother, um, you know, have nothing to do with him, but treat him as if he were an unbeliever." We're we're not talking about that situation, correct? Um, I don't know. That's what I'm trying to get at here is when do we, uh, you know, is it, is it his local church that has to discipline him? You know, sometimes here's what I think we think whenever we become theologically astute in these areas is I'm the one who must discipline him. I'm the one who in the cubicle next to him must break fellowship with him. And I think that's what you're saying here is that 
we don't have that responsibility as individuals. Well, and I think you're talking about totally different relationships. A coworker relationship where you say, hey, we can't talk as but coworkers. He's in, the church. he's in the church. Well, he's, he's, I would a, say he's, he's in the body not, of Christ. But he's not in your body of Christ, probably, what I would say. So I'm not going to be constantly looking to be a part of So if he's going to your church, though, you don't talk to him anymore. No, I'm not saying that either. What, I, what I'd probably say is that we won't agree. We will agree like Paul and Barnabas. You know, We're both going to minister, and we're both going to be cordial towards each other. We're maybe going to go to the same football game together and stuff like that. But Barnabas but, didn't deny the incarnation. Paul didn't deny the incarnation. Yeah, so if it's something serious. So we're talking about an essential Christian doctrine versus a non-essential. If it's non-essential, I would just say, hey, let's say we have two different views yeah, of the end times. That, you know, that, that's no let's not like teach together on the end times. No you know, problem. We won't do that. You know. Yeah, we we have to bring some clarification here because it might be confusing to the, our listeners. If I, I'm a pastor of a church here in Oklahoma City, if there is an individual who is attending regularly our services, maybe even one of our small groups, hanging out on a on a on a consistent basis, um, but who overtly and clearly denies the incarnation of Christ, we would regard that person as an unbeliever. We would welcome them to attend. I hope and pray they would continue to attend our services. I don't see any grounds in the scriptures for ever what we would call breaking fellowship with that individual. Mm -hmm. I don't think I have any excuse not to accept his invitation to go to lunch. Now, would if pay for his lunch? Yes, I would. <laughs> now, if we're dealing with an individual who attends our church and who is regarded as a member, who has um, said, yes, I embrace your statement of faith, I acknowledge the authority of the elders, um, I'm supporting uh, the ministry here with my giving and prayers, and then subsequent to that says, but, you know, I really don't think Jesus is God incarnate. Then there's a responsibility, obviously, <clears throat> of the leadership to uh, pursue that individual, which may result in discipline and that person being put outside the church. And I think Paul was very clear on that in 1 Corinthians 5, that um, you are not to associate with that individual, 1 Corinthians 5, 11. Uh, you're not even to eat with such a one. Mm -hmm. But when he goes on to say, but what have I to do with judging outsiders? See, I would regard that person who denies the incarnation but who's consistently sitting under my teaching minister as an outsider. Hmm. Just because he's inside the building doesn't mean he's a part of our fellowship, a well, part same. of the body. So it all depends on is the individual uh, someone who has affiliated in a, in a formal way with a body and put himself or herself under the authority of the elders as over against somebody who says, no, I don't want to do any of that. I just want to be here because I like to hear you talk. I like to be around the people. I'm curious about Christianity. And if that's my coworker, I'm going to go to lunch with that person and I'm going to love that individual. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to share with him. I'm going to you know, might even have to say, you know, let's not talk about theology for a while. Let's talk about football. Mm. Let's talk about what's going on in your family. Mm. Um, that's gonna, it's going to be different if that person, that coworker, is a professing Christian who is actually a part of the body of Christ that I'm trying to lead or that I'm also involved with. So there's a difference here, and I, I think that we have to recognize. And it's yeah, hard well because this is, this is what it comes down to is we're talking about, I think, in the minds of many people who are theologically astute, who are theologically passionate, they feel like they must break 
fellowship to a degree with whoever disagrees with them. You know, they draw their circle so tightly that that in the end, that's kind of their idea is that I should not associate with someone such as you. And that's the reason why this guy that we talked about last week who bought a cup of coffee and didn't like the 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 direction of our passion just left. I mean, in a sense, he broke fellowship. It was not a goodbye. It was not a, you know, keep it up. It was, see ya. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking to you guys anymore. And that, that, that seems to be what happens so often is that we're ready to break fellowship all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, if we can, just for illustrative purposes, let's come back to the Calvinist-Arminian divide. Because, unfortunately, let's probably 80 to 90% of the, uh, these kinds of divisions mm-hmm. are over that issue. It's not typically over the timing of the rapture, yeah, or um, or, or or something of that sort. Um, and one of the things that I think it's important, and I'm just I'm just saying this as a Calvinist who's almost sixty years old, and I've been in ministry for thirty six years. Uh, I have come. I have learned a very very important lesson in the last fifteen to twenty years of ministry that I didn't understand in the first ten to fifteen. I have um, I've come to realize that the vast, vast majority of those who would identify themselves as Arminians are not doing so because they want to uh, diminish the glory of God. They do not have have it out for the grace of God, as if they're secretly saying to themselves, I really don't like the idea that God is getting all the praise for salvation. I'd like a little for myself. Mm-hmm. I think Many, if not most Calvinists, especially young ones, think that that's what's driving the Arminian in his theological convictions. He wants a little praise for himself. He wants a little glory for his act of will in choosing Christ. He wants to hold on to at least one work that came from his own soul, uh, unaffected or untouched by the work of the Spirit, so he can get a little bit of applause um, for the fact that he's in the kingdom. I don't... I, I, discuss, I don't know that I've ever met, I say ever, maybe one or two here and there, Arminians who actually are motivated in that way. If I thought that they were, then my zeal and the intensity of my engagement with them would probably be elevated. But what I have come to see, and this is, again, and I'm just speaking for myself. This is on my own experience. I have worked on church staffs with Arminians uh, who understood their theology quite well and yet I was able to cooperate and work with them in spite of our obvious differences because I really believe that they really believe that their view does not diminish from the glory of God. Now do I think it does? Yes. In terms of just the theological system I believe that it is in that it does not in fact um, reflect highly on the glory of God. But they don't think that it does. They're convinced that Calvinism is wrong because it's just intellectually incoherent. There's just no way that the sovereignty of God can be uh, compatible with moral responsibility. Yeah. And so they they embrace an Arminian view. But it's not because they're driven by ego, pride, or a desire to dethrone God and to diminish his glory. Now, Semi-Pelagians, yeah, probably are driven by that, and so we deal with them differently. But I would just make a plea to the Calvinists who are listening to this. 
to not be so quick to judge the motivation of your Arminian friends. Um, in the vast majority of cases, if you get to know them and you really probe deeply and you spend time with them, you will discover that they are as committed in the depth of their heart to the centrality of God's glory and his grace as you are. Mm. Now, they may be absolutely and utterly inconsistent in affirming that and at the same time holding to an Arminian view, as I believe they are, but their motive and their heart intent is not to undermine the gospel. And I think if we could grasp that, maybe the arrogant, judgmental, divisive uh, attitude that so oftentimes has come to characterize Calvinists would begin to diminish a little bit. Well, if anything, Mm -hmm. it should cause us to be more humble and more broken. A couple of things from Scripture, I mean, uh, uh, that that relate to what we are doing. I think there's just a commonality among them all, no matter who you're dealing with. But uh, in Colossians, let your speech always be seasoned with grace whenever you're talking to the outsiders as it were, with salt. And we just really have to ask ourselves in every situation, is my speech, though passionate, though committed, though though desirous for the soul of this person, is it seasoned with grace? Let the Lord's bondservant not be quarrelsome. I mean, are we quarrelsome? Is that the way we're approaching theology? If it is, we may be canceling out our influence to be able to have any effect. Mm Mm-hmm. But be able to teach patient when wronged, gent- with gentleness, with gentleness, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. I mean, and then finally, of course, one of the most popular passages out there whenever it comes to apologetic circles is, is to defend the faith. Be ready in season and out of season to give an answer for every, to everybody who asks you for the hope that lies within you. What, and I like the question that says, asked you. Yeah. <laughs> um, for it is better if God, listen to this, not only, not only are these people drawing it out of you here, not that we're not to proclaim and preach, we are most certainly, but it says with gentleness and reverence. That's what the ESV has in it. Mm-hmm. The New American Standard, I think, has gentleness and respect. But this is, this is literally gentleness and fear, you know, it's, it's phobios. It's, and I think it's drawing back to, to the idea that these people we're talking to these people of different theology, these people who may be living in sin, these people who are, you know, people we need so desperately and we want so desperately to share the love of God with and to bring them back into the fold if they're out of the fold, they're in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Well, and Charles Spurgeon said that he would tremble like a leaf before he would get up to preach. And he said it wasn't because he was afraid of the people that he was preaching to, but that he recognized he was going to open his mouth and speak on behalf of God. And that led him to that phobias, to, to yes, these people are made in the image of God, so we should respect them and value them just in their creation. But then we are going to speak to them about their creator. That is something that, that we should fear and have reverence. It is. And uh, everything that we do, witnessing whoever we talk to, believer, heretic, let's, let's be in fear because they are God's image. Let's passionately pursue this, but somehow, somehow find that balance. And some, if we're not struggling with this, I, I think that we're probably on the wrong side one way or the other. We're just, let's don't talk. Let's always just be nice. Let's always not say what needs to be said. Or let's just always say something. If, we're, if we have this tension and struggle, I think we're probably in a better place than if we don't. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. Theology Unplugged. You can catch us on the um, 
web at uh, Parchment and Pen. We post each one of these broadcasts at Parchment and Pen, but as you will see at Parchment and Pen, our blog, there is a uh, place you can go to on iTunes. Now, I see some of you guys. It looks like our listenership has picked up quite a bit because of Sam Storms. (laughs) Uh, And and I see a lot of you guys are posting comments at uh, iTunes. Keep that up. That's great. It helps us out. It helps bring other people in. I've seen a lot of them recently. So head over to iTunes if you use iTunes and just tell us what you think. We want to hear back from you. It's important for us to know what you think of the broadcast. And um, keep an eye on our website. We should be updating it here pretty soon with Tim uh, continuing to work on it. And there will be some changes. We'll give you some announcements then. Until next week, God bless you guys. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.